The sermon for today is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For although absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Daniel, you sure you don't want to preach this passage? <laughs> Daniel and I had a conversation before church, and I said, you want to preach this, Daniel? It's a real easy passage. One of the big reasons that people reject Christianity or reject the gospel is because of hypocrisy in the church. It's one of the big reasons why, and maybe here this morning you're in that place, one of the reasons you've, you've really had trouble embracing Christianity or embracing the gospel is because of the hypocrisy that you see in the church, which is a, a church that projects an image of love and of justice and of mercy and of generosity, but practices hate and abuse and, agreed, and, and greed behind closed doors. In fact, the recent sexual scandals in both the Catholic and Protestant church adds to this problem. And what I would, I would make the argument that the issue at hand for, for those, and maybe some of you in this room, that have trouble embracing Christianity or the gospel because of this reason, I, I think that the reason is it's not that Christians sin or that Christian leaders or even pastors sin. It's that sin is hidden in dark places for decades. And that's what comes out in these scandals is that you realize for decades upon decades that there's been sin just lurking in the dark and lurking in the shadows and it comes out. And that's what feeds this cry of hypocrisy. Maybe that's your hurdle to embracing Jesus 
is the hypocrisy you see in the church. Or maybe the, the hurdle is, and this is similar, is that you look at the church and you look at the world and you don't see much difference that you see Christians behaving in the same way as non-Christians. And so then the offer to come to Jesus is, why would I come to Jesus? Because of what I see, there's no difference. Wherever you're at on on some of the resistance or some of the problems or some of the hangups that you have with the gospel or with Christianity, if you're in one of those two places, I think you will be deeply encouraged by this passage. Because this is a passage that's authentic and it's real, and I think it might actually answer some of your questions about the gospel and about Christianity. What the church is actually called to and why sin really does matter. So that's the question at hand here is, why does sin matter? And to answer that, we're going to look at the design of the church, the formation of the church, and the mission of the church. So first, the design of the church, one of the striking realities that comes out of this passage is in the first two verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now here's what's striking. This scandalous act of sexual immorality has been reported. And yet Paul's primary focus is not on the individual, but how the church is handling it. You notice that? He's going to deal with the individual, and he does as we progress through the passage, but out of the gates, his concern is not primarily the individual, but the church and how the church has handled this. Why? Well, let's explore the nature of the sin itself. When it says that he has his father's wife, that phrase, his father's wife in Jewish circles, meant stepmother. Okay, so this man committed sexual immorality with his stepmother. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks directly to this. As God is telling his people what the design is for life and how they're to live, he actually addresses this very thing. So Deuteronomy uh, twenty two thirty, a man shall not take his father's wife, stepmother, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Deuteronomy 27, 20. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And this in Deuteronomy is one of many commands that God lays out for his people. In the same way that in this passage, sexual immorality is not the only sin that's called out. It dominates the scene. But if you go to verse 11, Paul calls out greed He calls out reviling. What is that? It's basically verbal abuse. He calls out drunkenness, which broadly speaking can be any kind of substance abuse. He calls out swindling, which is really scamming and stealing. What we see here is that God lays out commands. God lays out laws and commands on how life is to be lived. And God's commands are intended to be life-giving. They're intended to give freedom, not to steal life and not steal freedom. But God's commands are life-giving. They are, he has a design for how life is to be lived because he created life. So he created it and he has a design. He has a blueprint, so to speak, 
that says this is how life is designed to live, to be lived and to function and to flourish and to thrive. I'm giving you the blueprint, the design. And the church, going back to the Old Testament with Israel and even now in this passage, the church is to be the prototype of this design for life. I've used this illustration before, but it speaks to it well. A fish is free and thriving and flourishing within the boundaries of water. Okay, a fish is not free out of water. A fish is dead out of water. Why? Because a fish has been designed to thrive and to flourish within the boundaries of water. And so what Paul is saying here in this Corinthian church is, listen, I've got a design. There are boundaries, but those boundaries are life-giving. Those boundaries are to cause you to flourish. So what he's calling out here is a church that is, is violating that, those life-giving boundaries, that life-giving design. Now, here's the question. Why were the Corinthians arrogant about this? All right, that's what verse two says. It says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Listen, it's one thing to get caught in sin. It's another thing to boast about it. And they're boasting. Why is that the case? Well, as we've seen in this study of the Corinthian church, they had what they called superior knowledge and superior wisdom. And this superior knowledge and wisdom gave them what they thought was the freedom to dismiss parts of God's law and God's commands. Specifically Deuteronomy, where this sin is called out, they had new knowledge. They had superior wisdom that says, you know what, we, that's a little bit outdated. We've gotten beyond that. And so they had this knowledge that, that puffed them up. In fact, if you, if you look back at chapter four last week, it said they went beyond what was written. In other words, that's just saying they, they thought they were above the law. Chapters six and chapters 10, which we'll get to, uh, Paul uses the phrase, all things are lawful for me. And then he comments on it. He's using one of their phrases. That was their phrase. All things are lawful for us. We have new knowledge. We have new wisdom. God's commands or some of them just don't pertain anymore. A group of psychologists, they did a, a study with a, with a high power group. Think high power group. So high powered business executives. And they did a study with them about speeding. And what came out of the study is that this group of high-powered executives said, it's okay for us to speed, but they thought it was right for others to obey the posted speed limit signs. And the, the, the study went on to say, what's the rationale behind that? Why do you believe that? And their response was, we are important people, and here's the kicker. We're powerful, therefore we must have good reasons to speed. You see what that is? That's, that's basically them saying we're, we're above the law because we have superior knowledge and we have superior motives, right? That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They're saying we have superior knowledge, we have superior wisdom, and so this part of God's law we're just going to dismiss. Doesn't apply, it's outdated, whatever it may be. Now you may say I'm still not connecting with this. How in the world are they boasting? They're arrogant about this. And as we see, a sin that was even not even, it wasn't even tolerated among those outside the church. 
right? And they're boasting about it. What was really going on here? Well, let me, let me draw it to our time today. Think about when there's new research that unfolds about our world or the human body, new research or new knowledge. And, and, and the statement that oftentimes can come out of that is, doesn't what we know today make God's commands thousands of years ago obsolete or outdated? Specifically, one example, wow, there's new studies that show that there are genes, right? Human genes that make us predisposed to certain types of sin. And the thought is, wow, we have new knowledge. We're made that way, right? So we, 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 we push aside God's law in certain areas. But listen, there's, that's nothing new. The Bible says that we're not born into this world as a blank sheet of paper, that we're born into the, world, into the world sinful. In other words, that sin is inherited. Sin gets passed down. We, we actually sin, but then we are born into the world inheriting sin from our parents. That sin is passed down. And so here's what the new knowledge, the new research that we find about about our world, about our bodies, right? What it should do is drive us back to Genesis 3, that we understand the fall and rebellion that much more. That when sin entered the world, it affected us spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and it corrupted the actual physical body, corrupted genes, corrupted everything, so that sin is passed down. But what we tend to do is when we find these new discoveries or these new, this new knowledge or this new research, we use it to revise God's commands. And we, we use it to revise God's design instead of understanding more deeply how sin has absolutely shattered and broken our world, our lives, our physical bodies. And so we don't revise God's design. God's design is beautiful. And any new knowledge makes us simply more humble and bow further to a God who is undoing all of this brokenness and all of this shattering that we have in our life. I mean, to use a, the previous illustration, instead of new knowledge bringing us to a place of um, arguing that a fish operates better out of water, <laughs> it's new knowledge and, and, and new research, whatever it is in our modern day that should cause us to even more so go, wow, life outside of the water for the fish is deadly. It's not thriving, it's not flourishing. And all the more, wow, God's boundaries are absolutely perfect and wise and meant for us to flourish, not to take away our freedom. A fish is free in the water. We're free in God's design because he made us and he knows how we're designed. So why does sin matter? because God has a design for life and his church is to serve as the prototype for this design for life, this life-giving design. Second, if God has a design for the church, then how does he form the church, right? He has a, a blueprint for life, for his church. How does he form it? What's the formation of the church? And it's understanding the formation of the church. It's actually gonna explain why three times in this passage, Paul asked for this church to remove this man, which we're gonna to get to. But it's the formation of the church. Look at verse six. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Leaven is, is yeast. You put a pinch in a batch of dough and it spreads through the entire dough. So if that leaven has harmful bacteria in it, then it infects the entire batch, 
right? Look at verse seven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul is describing here what happened at the Passover. God's people were in awful slavery in Egypt. God sent Moses to deliver them. And through Moses on the eve of Passover, he told his people to slaughter a lamb, kill a lamb and take the blood and wipe it on the doorposts. And when God came through the land in judgment, he would see the blood and pass over that household. God said, take the lamb, cook a meal, and I want you to, I want you to, to eat unleavened bread. Why unleavened? Because they wouldn't have time for the bread to rise. Because as soon as judgment came through, Pharaoh said, go. And they were to go quickly in haste. That's why it was unleavened bread. You're not gonna have time. Flee, run. When you're released, run from this. Don't go back to Egypt and don't bring Egypt with you. You're free from this awful slavery. You're a new community that I'm calling out to live according to my design. Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb, that by his blood, we have been freed from awful slavery to sin. And that's why verse eight says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to slavery. And don't bring that slavery in Egypt into the new community. You are a new community called out of darkness into the light, beautifully designed to flourish underneath God's design. So what's this have to do then with the man who Paul is asking to be removed from the church? What's this have to do? You know, three times in this passage, Paul says, remove this man from the church. Verse two, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse five, you're to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 13, purge the evil person from you. This purge the evil person from you is straight from Deuteronomy. Straight from Deuteronomy. And in and, and Deuteronomy, if someone, if a man or a woman broke the covenant, started worshiping other gods, they were to be stoned to death and removed from the covenant community. Now you should be really uncomfortable right now. Really uncomfortable to say, wait a minute. So if I sin, I'm removed? No, the problem here wasn't that the man committed the act of sin. The problem was that he was not repentant. There was no repentance. In fact, he was arrogant about it. Look what I've done. Look how much knowledge we have now. We've gotten beyond that archaic stuff. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He should have been mourning. Godly sorrow is what leads to repentance. See, the problem here is not that this man sinned. It's that he wasn't repentant and the church was doing nothing about it. The church was allowing it to happen. It's what's described in verse five. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is really a parallel passage to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if, you, if someone's caught in sin, you confront that person in hopes that they'll repent. If they don't repent, 
you bring somebody with you. If they still don't repent, you bring the church, meaning the church, the leadership gets involved. And if they still don't repent, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what that means is that that whole process has revealed that they're, they're not in Christ. And what do you do with a Gentile and a tax collector? You love them, but they're removed from the rhythms of the church. And the point is, what we see in verse five, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is, this is what this means. Remove this man from the church, deliver him to Satan. Outside of Christ and outside of the church that's in Christ is the dominion of Satan. That's his playground. That's where he destroys. And so the idea here is to deliver him to Satan, right? For the destruction of the flesh. What's the flesh mean there? It means the mode of life in pursuit of its own ends in absolute self-reliance and self-dependence. And so the thought here and what is being called for here is that remove him from the church that he's in, he's out of the, the care of the community or, or, the, or the, the, uh, the touch of the community, the support. He's on his own and he gets to feel what it's like to be outside of Christ. And the hope is that when he feels that, there's a change of heart. And then he comes back and his spirit is saved. That that's what's going on here. The goal of excommunication, the goal of church discipline is restoration. It's repentance. It's getting somebody to realize how serious it is to be outside of Christ. The point is this, that evil must be, pure, must be purged from the church of Jesus Christ. And there's two ways that evil gets purged. Either you are purged or evil is purged from you by Jesus. Either you are purged or evil is purged from you by Jesus. That outside of Christ, you are purged. In Christ, Jesus was purged for you. The church is formed by Jesus Christ through repentance. Now listen, if you have been asleep this whole time, wake up now, because I'm gonna say something really important. If you miss anything, if you miss this entire sermon, don't miss this sentence. The church is not formed through sinless perfection. The church of Jesus Christ is formed through faith and repentance. Repentance is not just going from bad behavior to good behavior. Look at Israel's story. They were in Egypt. What happened between them being in Egypt and at the base of Mount Sinai where God delivered his design for life, his design for them? What happened between there? Bloodshed, right? Lamb was slaughtered. Same is true. Repentance is not going from bad to good. Repentance is turning from sin and idolatry to a person. It's turning to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus empowers you and produces the fruit of sincerity and truth that's being called for here. You know, you can come away from this passage and have a superficial conclusion that the church is formed by sinless perfection. And everybody needs to get scared and everybody needs to, 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 to behave themselves because what the church is formed through good. It's formed through good behavior, that that's how the church is formed. And good is what matters. It just matters that you're good. And repentance, if we talk about it, it's just going from bad to good. 
But is that the case? Is that really true? Listen, I want you to imagine a, a poor widow, a poor widow who has one son, and she raises this son to be a good person. She raises him to be honest. She raises him to work hard. She raises him to help the poor. She's incredibly poor, but she gathers together all of her meager savings and puts her son through college. Somehow does it. And when this son graduates college, he doesn't call her. Maybe he sends a Christmas card here and there, never calls her, never visits her, but he lives exactly as she taught him. He's good. He works hard. He helps the poor. Now, would you say that's commendable? That that's acceptable? You'd say, of course not. Of course not. He needs to turn to the one who has sacrificed everything for him. In the same way, being good is not enough. Being good is not what forms the church. What forms the church are people that turn in repentance from sin, from evil, from idolatry, all of that, to the one to whom they owe everything, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ is the one that empowers fruitful living and sincerity and truth and all of that. But repentance is turning to Jesus Christ. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival. What did Israel do every time they celebrated the Passover? They were reenacting their emancipation from slavery. Every time they celebrated the Passover. Every time you repent, every time you repent and turn from your sin and idolatry to Jesus Christ, you're reenacting your emancipation from slavery and what Jesus has done to rescue you. So why does sin matter? Because God has a design for life and he wants his church to be the prototype of that. Second, because Jesus forms his church by his blood through repentance. Jesus forms the church. And so if the church is gonna be formed, it needs to turn to Jesus. And then third, sin matters because of the mission of the church. Look at verses nine to 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. What's this mean? It's not the impurity and the evil outside the church that's the biggest threat to the church. The biggest threat to the church is when there's lack of repentance on the inside. You know, we, we can get caught up in thinking that an eroding culture or a certain political climate is the biggest threat to the church. That is not true. 
The biggest threat to the church is lack of repentance on the inside. Because the world needs to see a church that is different, not sinlessly perfect, but that when it does sin, has soft heart to repent quickly, not to hide, not to justify, not to brush it under the carpet, but to be transparent and to repent. The biggest threat to the church comes from within. The biggest threat to the church comes from within, not out there. The church is to be a distinct community. It's to be distinct. And the distinctiveness of the church is marked by its repentance. Let me say that again. The church is to be distinct. And what marks the distinctness of the church is its repentance. And of course, repentance has fruit of sincerity, of truth. Yes. But don't turn repentance into bad behavior to good behavior. Repentance is from bad behavior to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ begins to produce fruit in you. That's good. The biggest threat to the church comes from within. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Israel was called to be the light to the nations. The church is to be distinct, and it's marked by repentance. CBS News ran a segment this past summer about a student who went to a zoo in Egypt, in Cairo. And uh, when he walked up to the zebra, or the, the zebra, it's a new animal. New knowledge! Zebras! We got it figured out. When he went to the zebra exhibit, you know, the enclosure, as he got closer to it, he looked and realized something looks funny here. And he took a picture and he posted it on social media and it went viral. And <laughs> these supposed zebras really turned out to be and looked like donkeys that had been spray painted black. And this, this video went viral and everybody got hold of it. And of course, a local news station got hold of it. And they got a, vet, a veterinarian in to, to look at this and make a judgment. And this vet said, yeah, zebras usually have a black snout. This one didn't. And zebras, the striping is usually much more narrow and much more defined. You see, from a distance, it looked like a zebra. But as they moved in and as you got closer, it became less and less authentic. You remember where I opened? One of the biggest reasons that people reject Christianity is because of the hypocrisy of the church. And may it be true, and this is what Paul's getting at, that as the world moves closer and closer to the church, they don't see less authenticity hiding, covering up sin that's in the, in the darkness for decades that results in a scandal 10 years later, that as people move closer and closer to the church, they see more and more authenticity, more transparency, more repentance, more sincerity, more truth. 
People aren't turned off by an act of sin. They're turned off by a lack of repentance and transparency and authenticity in the church of Jesus Christ. Why does sin matter? Because God has a design for life and it's beautiful. And he says, church, I want you to be the prototype of that. And God forms his church through the blood of Jesus Christ, through repentance, so that the church can be on mission and be a light to the world. Not a light by sinless perfection, but a light of authentic repentance and transparency, which yes, turning to Jesus Christ produces good works. I pray that as Christ Church East, that we are a church that we are not sinlessly perfect because you've got a pastor that's not sinlessly perfect. By no means, and none of you are either, that this church, this local body, when people get closer and closer, they wouldn't get closer and go, wow, less authentic. No, they'd move in closer and go, wow, transparency, humility, sincerity, truth, repentance. And that in that way, the church would be a city on a hill. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our hypocrisy. We confess our tendency to cover up our sin. We confess our tendency to want to hide behind it and want to project this image of who we're not. Oh, Father, would you humble us? Would you create in this body here, in our community groups, communities of beauty that are marked by transparency, authenticity, and repentance, that marriages in this room would be marked by repentance, that husbands would be lead repenters, that our children would learn at a very young age that at the heart of the gospel is repentance, faith and repentance, not sinless perfection. That Father, as we turn to you and as we turn to your son Jesus in repentance, that you would transform us and change us and fill us, that we would be a distinct community for your glory and that we would be so welcoming to people who have millions of reasons to reject Christianity and the gospel. Oh, Father, bring that humility to us and make us a repentant church. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.